Hey, this is Anna David with After Party, and you are listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio. A 21st century look at 12-step life. Now, with less dogma and more bite, this is episode 27. We'll call it the Rendezvous with Madness episode. Recently on Rebellion Dogs Radio. Back on episode 25, we looked at identity politics, borrowing from the LGBTQ pride, Charlotte Castle, who writes about women, sex, and addiction, Buddhism, and her look at 12 steps, many roads, one journey. We heard from writer Andrew Solomon, who shared on a TED Talk, there is always someone there to take our humanity away, and always someone to restore it. Oppression breeds the power to oppose it. Last month on Rebellion Dogs Radio, episode 26, Philip Zuckerman introduced the word secular phobia to us to describe hostility and ridicule that many who hold supernatural worldviews express towards the humanist, reductionist, or secular view of life. We looked at how civil rights became more than just a race issue, whereby segregation, racism, was a threat to any minority and an affront to anyone with a pluralist view of democracy. We looked at how civil rights became more than a race issue, whereby segregation, racism, was a threat to any minority and an affront to anyone with a pluralist view of democracy. In this episode, we look at how stigma towards addicts and addiction treatment, like racism, is a weight on pluralism and a barrier to better care for behavioral and mental health disorders. We visit Rendezvous with Madness in Toronto, the largest and longest-running arts and film festival devoted to addiction and mental health. And we visit NADAC's annual conference for addiction professionals in Minneapolis. On each front, artists and professionals explore stigma and how best to combat it. Joe, you ask, what is NADAC? Well, some history. Founded in 1974, the National Association for Alcoholism Counselors and Trainers, NACT, the organization's primary objective was to develop a field of professional counselors with professional qualifications and backgrounds. The organization evolved and became the National Association for Alcoholism and Drug Abuse Counselors, NAADAC in 1982, uniting professionals who worked for positive outcomes in alcohol and drug services. NADAC's new name, NADAC, the Association for Addiction Professionals, was adopted in 2001 and reflects the increasing variety of addiction services professionals, uh, counselors, administrators, social workers, and others who are active in counseling prevention, intervention, treatment, education, like us, and research. Addiction is the number one health issue in the United States today, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, 
S-A-M-H-S-A. From that website, they tell us approximately 22 million people, 12 years of age and older, needed treatment for substance use disorder in 2010. And of those 22 million people, almost 10% of the U.S. population, by the way, only 2.6 million, 11%, received the care they needed. In NADAC's official magazine, Advances in Addiction and Recovery, the fall 2016 issue, under Professional Ethics, Mita Johnson, NADAC Ethics Committee Chair, offers her perspective in an article called Cultural Humility and Sensitivity. The word discrimination from an ethical, multicultural perspective means to recognize, appreciate, and value differences. From a positive counseling point of view, to discriminate is to engage in dialogue and provide prevention, assessment, treatment planning, treatment, and recovery services that embrace and incorporates cultural diversity. Clinicians and other service providers intentionally recognize and incorporate areas of difference and need because that's what we do to help our clients engage, participate, succeed, thrive, and grow. (laughs) That's refreshing. How very civilized. I'm always concerned when a word is taken hostage to mean one certain thing and have other definitions ignored. For instance, AAs claim the word sober to mean complete abstinence from alcohol. And that's what I mean when I say sober. But pass her a roadside breathalyzer test after having one beer and you'll be legally sober. You or I just can't go to our AA home group later and celebrate continued sobriety by AA's definition. As Mita Johnson points out, the same is true with the word discrimination. If you say to me, Joe, how dare you discriminate, you aren't using the word in a positive vein, or at least I doubt it. But as Mita Johnson points out, to discriminate can mean to recognize differences. None of this, I see no color stuff and accommodate instead of build barriers. Mita Johnson reminds readers that counselors and service providers have a duty to develop ethical, multicultural skills, and there are three stages to achieve this skill. One, exploring. Two, understanding. And three, acting. Johnson explains that the concept of multicultural humility and sensitivity has been attacked and put aside while the definition of to discriminate has been elevated. Cultural affiliation represents and celebrates the beliefs, customs, practices, historical frames, experiences, and ways of being that are unique and vital to a group's identity. Johnson explains in her article that putting the needs of the substance use disorder mental health client first, well, that means it's about their needs, not the counselors. For professionals, it starts with understanding one's own biases and perspective. She writes, addiction professionals shall develop an understanding of their own personal, professional, and cultural values and beliefs. 
providers shall recognize which personal, professional, and cultural values may be in alignment with or conflict with the values and needs of the client. Providers shall not use cultural or value differences as a reason to engage in discrimination. Providers shall seek supervision and or consultation to address areas of differences and to decrease bias, judgment, and microaggressions. It's easy to see professional sensitivity as essential to minority differences and accommodation. That's just a matter of human rights. It's a good reminder to all of us, though, that we have biases, too. And these biases predispose you and I to judgments, may be dismissive or hostile behavior. Mita Johnson uses the term microaggression. Humility. It's a good attribute to bring to cultural differences. I, I can't assume that I understand you and your experience because of a general identifying label you use or I use for you. You say you're an atheist, agnostic, or theist, and I immediately bring assumptions to these labels. You say you're trans, you're lesbian, you're heterosexual, a visible minority, or have a mental health disorder, and don't I just think I know what that means? But I don't. I don't know what this experience means for you. I need the humility to ask more questions, at least if I want to understand. In a future Rebellion Dogs radio show, we'll go into some of the details of the great presentations and workshops at NADAC. Workshops for attendees were under different tracks. One, co-occurring disorders. Two, clinical skills. Three, psychopharmacology. Four, recovery support. Five, practice management and technology. And six, cultural humility. Under that track, Cultural Humility, there were presentations on teens in the digital world, intergenerational trauma, trauma-informed addiction care for men, becoming culturally competent, looking within, and the presentation that John McAndrew and I gave was called Beyond Belief, Sensible Spirituality in Treatment and Recovery. We looked at Creed, an update on how peer-to-peer -peer organizations are adjusting to the variety of atheist and agnostic experiences, as well as a growing tapestry of supernatural or religious beliefs and constructs walking in our doors. So let me share more of Mita Johnson from NADAC. She was very gracious to share time out of her demanding schedule. We're going to go to an interview I had with her, but the setting is the final hours on the final day of the conference. Around us, our NADAC and hotel staff, they're all packing up. You'll hear Mita and I talking about her article, the current professional landscape, and especially if you've ever wondered about a career in addiction or mental health, we'll talk about the expansion and growing need for treatment caregivers from varied backgrounds. So let's go to Minneapolis, Monday, October 10th, in the Hyatt Regency Conference Center, this is Mita Johnson, I'm with NADAC, and we're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. This came out of an issue that developed in one of the other communities we serve. So we have a, um, a wide variety of 
treatment facilities that are primarily Caucasian or they're primarily, you know, non-gay, LGBT, yeah. you know, population. And, and we recognize that, that that's a great difficulty and that clients can do well with people of diverse cultures, but sometimes they really want to work with someone who, who's been there, done that, and right. can really relate. So there is a movement within the entire counseling profession to encourage people of diverse cultures to get involved in our profession. Right. Just age alone. Mm -hmm. If the yes. average person coming into treatment for the first time is in their late 20s, yes. and the average counselor is over 60, yes. saying, I know how you feel, they might prefer talking to a counselor yeah. with uh, body ink and piercings yes. and someone yes. who really does look like they know what how they feel right yes yeah yeah so thank goodness our average age isn't six over 60 <laughs> yeah. but yes you're absolutely correct <laughs> that's so true the whole recovery community for the industry and for lay people it is so easy to assume uh oh you know you're uh conservative so you think this way or mm -hmm. uh you're gay or you're heterosexual or mm -hmm. you're an agnostic so you believe this right mm -hmm. and and i love what you say about uh, let them define what those words mean for yes, them. Yes, absolutely. And that's where the humility comes in. Yes. We don't assume uh, even what the labels they use for themselves are going to mean. You know, the frustration for me is that people don't even realize what they're assuming. Right. As a profession, we, we need to cut that out. We need to really mm -hmm. start looking at the assumptions that we're making because our accuracy level is at less than 20%. Yeah. So 80% of the time we're wrong. Yeah. And so why are we making these kinds of you know assumptions? And my, my concern is, is a lot of my clients started using when they were between 12 and 24, which is when you do identity formation. Yeah. So they don't know who they are. And then right. I'm laying my labels on top of, or my assumptions right. on top of who they are. Mm -hmm. And they don't know to say, no, that's not how I feel or, or think. Yeah. Because we haven't allowed them the time to fuss through that. Th that's right. They may be in going through a process as opposed to arrived at a firm yeah. self-identification. Yeah. And I do truly believe, and I, I'm a great example of that, My, I, I think it's a lifelong journey to really figure out who you are. And mm -hmm. in each chapter in your life, your identity is being shifted or reformed based on whatever's going on in that chapter. And we have the right to change. Yes. Right? A believer yes. can become an apostate. Yes. Uh, a skeptic can become a believer. Yes. Right? I mean, we, we aren't stuck no. where we're at. No. The CEO of uh, Hazelden mm -hmm. uh, sort of admitted when he was challenged mm -hmm. that even the fact that they are now looking at the opioid epidemic as a medical problem, not a criminal problem. Oh, is, absolutely. Yeah, but a lot of that is because it is now in the suburbs, it's the girl or boy next door. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's not purely a African-American issue or a Latino issue. And in not the best of reasons is at least helping to say, okay, we can't be segregating here. If we're going to treat it as a medical issue, this is true for everybody. Maybe we shouldn't be criminalizing addiction. Well, that's always horrified me. So I, yeah. who set out to be an addict? I mean, who woke yeah. up one day and said, I want to be addicted to opiates? Nobody yeah. did. Yeah. You know, and so to criminalize that and to criminalize the fact that the biology of your brain's gone amok, 
it's doing the very thing we're saying we don't want to do to our clients, which is stigmatize them and criminalize them. Right. So yes, they engage in behaviors to feed their addiction. However, they, like I said, they didn't set out to become addicted. And typically, unfortunately, there's a lot of trauma going into their addiction. Mm -hmm. And so unless we deal with the trauma, we just keep adding to it. Now the medical model, I do believe the medical model only because Mm -hmm. it uses biology. Yes. Right? And so because it's the only model that says brain chemistry has changed Mm -hmm. and fundamentally in ways that are outside of their ability to control without really, you know, treatment. Um, I, I do like the medical model piece. I think it's more complex than that because unfortunately you still have to deal with the PTSD or, you know, you have no family, you have no support system, you know, your drug's your best friend. I mean, you got all these other dynamics that feed into it. Definitely true. Uh, another theme that was uh, uh, played out here is the need uh, to, uh, as uh, uh, Kirk would say, to perpetuate ourselves, hmm. finding a way to draw younger people, especially yeah. into the industry. Yeah. What are the challenges for doing that? Well, so I just did a forum in Denver for um, reaching out to students, and in part of it, we have a problem right now in our profession. We were the last ones to the table. So mm-hmm. you had social workers, counselors, and then addiction counselors. So yeah. we're, we're sort of these the last to the table. And so there's this whole misunderstanding about what addiction counselors really do or don't do. And I think that's been a problem. Young people have been told that we don't make any money. And so therefore, why would you go into a profession where you're not making any money? They've been told that, you know, you don't you don't need to go through all that just because you're a general practitioner and you're a general practitioner. You can get hired anywhere. And and what I do say to young people, because I think especially our millennials right now, they they part of being a millennial is I want to make a difference in my community and in my world. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that really is truly what you want to do, then addictions is really where you need to look because you do need to do that. What I heard a lot of millennials tell me at our conference was, um, I only want to do mental health or I only want to do substance abuse. So I'm like, you can't split a person in half. They kind of come as a whole, you know, and they're kind of a whole package. So you're either working on all of it or you're not working on any of it, but you can't just pick and choose what you want to work on. We haven't been educating our, our young people well. We haven't changed our school systems to understand how they need to incorporate mm-hmm. at the collegiate level. Mm-hmm. All the programs need to be revamped and looked at. We're just now understanding um, co-occurring disorders. I have primary care that doesn't believe in addiction. They're just now believing in addiction right. for the first yeah. time. So we have this issue. So I think it's it's a whole bunch of layers. And, and so we are making a very, I mean, NADAC has, um, SAMHSA has, Um, I know all of us at our collegiate institutions really are making concerted effort to say, hey, look at addictions. Right. On the upside, it's going to be a growing profession. There's going to be no lack of opportunity. We have a 37% shortage right now. Yeah. Right now. If you look at Medicaid picked up all these people that didn't have insurance before. So we have this shortage. I think the other thing is we now are recognizing for the first time gambling I mean we've always known gambling's yeah. addiction but we're making it formal now so I mean gambling's an addiction sex is an addiction internet gaming is an addi- I mean anything can become an addictive behavior yeah and that's intriguing to our young people too it seems for, more balanced for sure yeah yeah 
it's not a high-paying profession, but you're not in it for the money. You're in it for the sense of duty or gratitude or whatever. On the other hand, as they require higher and higher education, mm -hmm. it's going to up the sort of minimum pay level. Mm -hmm. But then on the other side, it's going to increase the cost of care, which is another concern that that's mm. one of the barriers for entry for people who need addiction professionals is affordability. So I always have a problem with this. You can't make money in our profession. Yeah. If you're passionate about something, you can make money doing it. Yeah. So if you're passionate about it, yeah. you will make money. Yeah. I, I like okay. your style. So, I mean, I'm from the music business, so yeah. I... <laughs> you get it. All right. If you're not passionate about it, you're only interested in the paycheck, yeah. you're probably not going to make more than just whatever that paycheck is. Exactly. You know? um, a wise piece of advice I was given a long time ago when I first entered this profession was don't have just one income stream. Right. You can be a writer. You can have a private practice and work for a facility. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can do a, a number of things, but if you put all your eggs in one basket, you're going to be stuck in that basket. Yeah. Now, there are other people. I know I'm one. I have uh, I have a PhD. That's my way of saying um, professional hyperactivity disorder. <laughs> um, I have that. So... Um, uh, so for me, that I, I like the variety. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say to young people coming in the profession, you really need to know a lot about yourself. And are you are you needing structure? Are you needing like a to work within an organization? I recommend that to everybody coming yeah. into our profession. Get to know mental health centers and do all your internships and stuff. And then you know, as you can, build your skill and build what you provide, and and you will be able to make more money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's great because that is a, almost an unrebuted uh, turnoff. Oh, yeah. well, it's there's no money in it. Yeah. Right? And it says who, right? You know? Well, I'm not going to hand you money. Yeah. you got to work for it. Yeah, exactly. But there isn't a glass ceiling right. if, if you think outside the box. Right. Uh, that's fantastic. Thanks for spending some yeah, time with absolutely. us. And I think your, your ideas are wonderful. Your energy is great. Um, what will people look forward to in Denver that maybe they haven't seen before? Uh, any uh, hints? At our conference, you mean? Yeah. We haven't really formalized anything yet at this point, so we're yeah. still in the early. I think we all needed to live through this. Right. Right, and so now we'll start really kind of planning and working on our Denver conference. Yeah. Baby, go yeah. to rehab. I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no. appreciate that having read me to Johnson's article, I wanted to talk to her, and I'm stoked to share her insights with you. Considering a career change? Well, working in treatment is a possibility. Just maybe you might want to consider that having a heart attack doesn't qualify you or I to be a heart surgeon, so at a professional level anyway, being an addict doesn't qualify us to treat addicts. If you think about it, or if you're thinking about this as a possible career, maybe volunteer first. I volunteer at Bellwood Health Services in Toronto. It's a behavioral health facility. It treats addicts, trauma, people with mental and emotional handicaps. For some of us in long-term recovery, being immersed in the mania and chaos of addicts hitting bottom might be rewarding. 
and it might be unsettling. A year as a volunteer in a treatment center can go a long way to letting any of us know if we have a calling or if our recovery is better served by keeping our distance, giving back in some other way other than the front lines. Setting professional help aside, there's still plenty more to learn about being more effective in the peer-to-peer -peer recovery as well. Cultural humility is good medicine, I think, for all of us. One of the presenters at NADAC, Bridget Rivera, quotes activist Peggy McIntosh, White privilege is like an invisible, weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. The Art of Mindful Facilitation. That's a 2004 book written by Le Manois, who shares his experience and expertise with students about diversity training or to anyone wishing to deepen their knowledge of race and group dynamics. For some of us, Le Manois came to prominence with his 1994 documentary, The Color of Fear, whereby nine American men of various cultural ethnic backgrounds discuss prejudice and what their experience of being American is. Understanding that this is a moment in time that's 20 years old now, David Christensen is one of two white Americans who has a hard time understanding either his privilege or the disadvantage of others. He doesn't feel power over others. He doesn't take ownership or a responsibility for white privilege or systemic discrimination. Some of that language wasn't even floating around then. He wonders why anyone would hold the position that they don't have the same opportunity in America that he has, even though all his presidents have always been white men. All of the board of directors of most of the businesses he has ever dealt with are predominantly white men. Popular artistic depictions of God himself are a white male who created man in his own image. David didn't understand his advantage the way others understood their disadvantage. It was an important documentary, and director Le Manois went on to teach diversity training through his Berkeley, California-based company, Stir Fry Seminars and Consulting, and more recently on TED Talks. Le Manois says, I think this country has a huge mythology, and that mythology is that our differences are valued. I don't think so. I think they are celebrated. I think that if you really value someone's culture, you integrate it into your workplace. It becomes part of business, a part of the culture. We are more multi-holiday, he goes on to say, than we are multicultural. Le Manois would say that if Americans valued cultural differences, then Sunday wouldn't be the only day of worship. If AA valued atheists, then non-theistic language would become part of the culture and inserted into the literature. In October, AA Grapevine celebrated atheists and agnostics. Our stories were shared in our own words. That's great. That's a celebration. But to be appreciated would mean to be incorporated, where a secular language 
would be found alongside our theistic AA understanding of addiction and recovery. Lay Manois teaches 13 diversity exercises. This is called sensitivity training to some. Tolerance requires training because we have natural biases and fears of the unfamiliar. Sensitivity training or cultural humility is a necessary continuing education credit that professionals need to keep their training current and up to code. Even those of us in peer-to-peer -peer recovery, we amateurs, could benefit from sensitivity training and could do more to broaden our empathy and thus widen our fellowship's gateway. Les Manois practices and teaches the three principles that Mita Johnson espoused, exploring, understanding, and acting. You know, we can get to know someone who is sharing their experience as a minority or some underrepresented population in our own home group. We can all encourage them to share their experience of our meeting. Here are some questions from stir-fry seminars that can be asked. 1. Do you or have you ever felt like you needed permission to express yourself? Why or why not? 2. In what instance have you felt you needed permission? How does that make you feel? Who gave the permission? 3. What are the consequences of not expressing yourself or expressing yourself with permission or without permission? 4. As far as having to protect yourself or having someone else who has the power to grant permission in our meeting, how does this feel familiar for you? Now these are questions taught to trained facilitators or counselors. If we ask such questions and if we express our empathy to hear him or her express themselves, they may get quite emotional. It wouldn't be unusual for unresolved issues to surface. I'm not saying that memorizing this line of questioning is sensitivity training. Helping others is very complicated. The point I'm trying to make is that if you or I feel helpless, we can seek training, we can, with humility, learn to be better listeners. At NADAC, we were greeted by Minneapolis's mayor. What's unusual in terms of how the mayor welcomed us compared to greetings of other conventioneers she shared her sobriety date some 27 years ago, only in Minneapolis, Minnesota. As our gathering was in Hazelden Betty Ford's backyard, the home of the popularized Minnesota model, which incorporates the 12 steps not as therapy but as recovery management, it wasn't surprising that we were able to get some interesting speakers at just the right price. William Moyers, Vice President of Public Affairs and Community Relations, shared with the NADAC crowd. He told a little of his fourth time through treatment, where he found and kept abstinence-based recovery back in 1994. Moyers shared from one of his two books, Broken, My Story of Addiction and Redemption, 2007, and Now What? An Insider's Guide to Addiction and Recovery, 2012. Moyers talked about his early days as a lobbyist when a seasoned member of Congress shared what he thought 
was the addiction treatment profession's biggest problem. He told me, your profession is better than any other at circling your wagons, Moyers told us. But then what you do is you start shooting into the middle of the circle. That imagery rings true for me. I can't speak with authority about the greater treatment industry, but I <laughs> have some experience with the recovery community. The narcissism of small differences is alive and well in our cul-de-sac of houses of last resort. N.A.'s badmouth A.A. for their seeming misunderstanding of singleness of purpose. A.A.'s badmouth treatment centers that advocate harm reduction. Harm reductionists, badmouth faith-based abstinence advocates for their old-fashioned temperance mentality. Aren't we all on the same team? Are any of these other modalities really killing people? Around 125 years ago, Nietzsche said, there are no facts, only interpretations. Eh, could be true. It's probably more true than my anecdotal evidence is more valid than your anecdotal evidence. Also uh, from Hazleton, Mark Mishik, president and CEO, gave a Sunday morning State of the Union address called Thriving in a Future Full of Changes, disruptions, and challenges. In Q&A, Mishik conceded that Hazelton Betty Ford was concerned that both staff and clients at City Center are way more white upper middle class than the greater Minneapolis city itself. Solemnly, he spoke about the issue of America's burgeoning opioid epidemic. Last month in the fall 2016 In Recovery magazine, Editor Janet Hopkins shared from the American Society of Addiction Medicine data that drug overdose is the leading cause of accidental death in the U.S., with 47,000 lethal drug overdoses in 2014. And these aren't all heroin junkies. 19,000 of these 2014 overdose deaths were from doctor-prescribed pain management therapy, such as Oxycontin or Vicodin. Some of the in-recovery writers, like angry mom advocate Jody Barber, report, not only did I lose my child in 2010, three of Jared's close friends also died of overdoses. They were friendly, respectful, polite, and loving kids. I soon began hearing of more young lives lost in the same way. In Orange County, California, 88 young lives were cut short of overdoses that year. Jody Barber has a website, overtakenlives.org. Now, it's not hard to hear the sentiment of this magazine article titled Stop the Pill Pushing by Janet Colbert. Or is it Colbert? <laughs> No relation to Stephen. Anyway, she's writing a book called Stop Now, and she has a website called stopnow.com. And she's lobbying. When I met the Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA representatives, at their headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, I learned that the DEA monitors and approves the level of opioid production. According to the DEA, in 2012, there was an increase, 
1,747% in opioid production since 1996, the year OxyContin first came to market. Wow! I wonder what powerful lobby groups have encouraged the DEA to flood the market with lethal drugs. As this quota goes up, and let's be clear, this is government-sanctioned increase in killer addictive prescription drugs, the death toll goes up too. Sure, plenty of people need pain relief, I get it, but look at the death toll. Since OxyContin started producing easy money for everyone in the supply chain, pain management clinics, referred to in In Recovery magazine as pill mills, they've proliferated. In the case of Florida alone, there's over a thousand outlets, more pill mills than Dunkin' Donuts, maybe. Patricia Rosen, webmaster of thesoberworld.com, writes about losing her son, Stephen. Opiate and opioid addiction has become America's quiet pandemic. The problem has grown much larger than one mother can solve. I'm disheartened by the knowledge that today alone, 79 Americans will die horrific, avoidable deaths at the hands of opiates and opioids. Now back to Mark Mishik of Hazel and Betty Ford, who was facing NADAC attendees in Q&A. Mishik conceded that while the initiative to treat the opiate-opioid epidemic now is a medical problem instead of a criminal problem, that's the right move. He's disheartened somewhat that what it took for this humane step was for the problem to spill into suburban America, white privileged America. These days, every cocktail party and gathering that Joan, his wife, and I attend, practically everyone speaks of a loved one who suffered an overdose. It was great fun to put on a workshop at NADAC. It was a thrill to attend so many others put on by so many talented presenters. I'll do my best in a future show or shows to share this wealth of insight and information. This is Pam W., and I'm an advisor to the WAFT-IAC board. And I'm Diane P. I'm the chair of the WAFT-IAC, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. That's right. Stay with us. At the end of the show, I've got a song to share with you uh, from a band from the Toronto indie scene called Ape or Primitive Evolution. Kind of a cool thematic song, especially if you like uh, kind of a nine-inch nail sound. Anyway, can art save your life? I've been a bit of a downer counting how many heroin and prescription drug deaths there are every day, every hour. So here's a feel-good story, or at least a feel-better story. Leonard was at NADAC, and he brought a movie for everyone to enjoy, or more accurately, for everyone to cry over. It's called How I Got Over. Founder of both Writers in Treatment and Real Recovery Film Festival, Leonard Bushell shared this documentary with NADAC attendees Saturday night. I cried. This is a film about 15 formerly homeless and or incarcerated women as they craft an original play based on their 
true life stories, harrowing true life stories, to be performed one night only at the Kennedy Center. As observers of their creative process, we bear witness to their transformations from victim to artist and to the performing arts capacity to heal trauma, create connection, and start a conversation. They are all from a temporary housing complex, and the movie culminates with their date with destiny before a packed Kennedy Center tux and evening gown crowd. This documentary is a tearjerker. Look up Real Recovery Film Festival and see where they're stopping next. You might have a chance to spend some time with some recovery-oriented movies. Speaking of film and struggle and addiction, we go to Toronto, Ontario, where we arrive in time for the 24th annual Rendezvous with Madness, a film and art festival devoted to addiction and mental health. It ran from November 4th to November 12th. I'm going to share my own trailer teaser mashup of one of the offerings called Land of Not Knowing. The film is experimental. Four artists talk about suicide contemplation, and in one case, substance use disorder. They discuss the impulse to off themselves and the struggle to understand and overcome this impulse. The film looks at the stigma of suicide even among some mental health caregivers. Filmmaker Steve Sangudalochi, and Steve, if I got that wrong, please correct me, his subjects in the movie tell their stories. And the filmmaker responds with a striking visual scheme that I relate from my baby boomer perspective as a, a psychedelic uh, visual. In watching the art film, I found my rational mind wanting to line up the storylines. See, the way the story is told will drift from storyteller to storyteller, never giving us a visual cue uh, associated with the narrator. So instead of just letting the collective conversation flow as delivered, I keep trying to uh, take the different narratives, put them chronologically, narrator by narrator, instead of just enjoying the back and forth of the narrators as it's edited, like a collective, like people talking to each other. I liked it, even if it wasn't a free-flowing viewing experience. I mean, so what? Why should art be comfortable and comforting all the time? So anyway, enough from me. Talking about art is like tap dancing about architecture. I don't remember who said that. But here's a few minutes of the 2016 Land of Not Knowing. I had a real sense for a few years that I was like living on borrowed time, that this was a kind of like giddy fantasy that couldn't go on. And then it totally crashed and burned. I started drinking to black out intentionally. I would think like, I just can't face this day. I'm just gonna drink until I black out. And I would, and I did. I didn't really like it, but I, it got so that I couldn't imagine being able to live my life without it. And I would be really like self-harming and scream and scream for the whole time that I was blacked out, which was just like the most horrible thing. It was a nightmare. 
I couldn't imagine having to follow in the footsteps of my parents. I couldn't imagine getting that job and living in that house and learning how to drive a car or learning how to be a parent and have children and inflict my unexamined baggage and watch them play out my unseen foibles. I didn't take enough. That's the irony of it. Wanting to die and being afraid of being poisoned. I remember the doctor's office. Then the nurses took me down to the long hallway. One of them opened the door to a small room by pulling out a doorknob out of their pocket and inserting it into the door. She then pulled the doorknob back and hid it inside her pocket again. This image of the doors without doorknobs I kept in my mind for many years. I felt that I was locked into this room forever. What's the difference between optimism and hope? And I guess I've always felt like hope and fear are basically the same thing. It amounts to one variety of anxiety or the other. Optimism is supposed to be the state in which we are expecting to feel good later. <laughs> and in fact, that's when we feel good, is when we feel like things might be better later. It feels risky to be hopeful, you know? I would like to find another way to live. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. People just really don't understand how common depression is and that it's not just people being sad, it's a chemical imbalance. 30% of people will experience a mental illness in their life. That is huge. And yet no one talks about it. It's an invisible minority. I mean, if I was in a wheelchair, people would treat me way better than they do with the kind of disability I have. And that's what it is, it's a disability. From our website, you can get a link to see uh, a trailer or maybe the whole thing even by the time you click on it. We're not through Rendezvous with Madness at the time of her, so we'll have more next month. Although I regret missing the crescendo, as I'll be off to Austin for We Agnostics, Atheists, and Freethinkers International AA Conference, while it's a shame not being able to be in two places simultaneously, this is a dilemma of quality alternatives. If you've been following Rebellion Dogs Twitter, Rebellion Dogs Facebook, you already know about some of the adventures in addiction and mental health and the films we've enjoyed from Rendezvous with Madness. Later this week for us, and next month we'll share with you a conversation we're going to have with the producer of The Business of Recovery. It takes a critical look at the recovery business, what it costs, who gets or doesn't get a bang for their addiction recovery buck. At this point, I don't know if it's investigative journalism or sensationalist fault-finding and finger-pointing. We'll get back to you with our interview with Greg Horvat. He's a second guy from Huntington Beach we've talked to recently. Uh, remember a principal of recovery author, the punk rock guy? Anyway, yeah, he was from Huntington Beach as well. Punk rocker, surfer author, Principle of Recovery. Still a great book. Anyway, I digress. Hey, does anyone out there know Ken? He's a Gastown street artist. That's a Vancouver neighborhood. 
He paints boldly and fast. Part of this is due to his technique. Images spring from him like thoughts. The city transfigured into stark visions. But it's also part of his survival strategy. Ken Foster is a schizophrenic and a crack addict, and he's chosen to live with his demons as a condition of his art. Creator uh, Josh Lehner doesn't moralize about either the creative relationship between being high and painting, nor does he push a view about the economics of talking a street artist down from his asking price for his original art, or for that matter, the act of contributing to addiction and ostensibly organized crime through paying for street art when you know that the artist's next stop is his dealer. So anyway, we don't get a big moral speech about that. If you have a strong opinion about any of these polarizing issues, you may be left unsatisfied by this documentary. The story doesn't prove you right about your opinion, be it liberal or conservative. It isn't a political movie. It's a story of a man and the people in his life, the drugs and mental health issues he deals with, the community he lives in, and a series of events and adventures captured for posterity. I loved it. Again, not because it was so enjoyable to watch, but because I feel enriched for knowing Ken Foster. I can tell you this. He, as an artist, is worthy of his critical acclaim. If you are an ex-crack user, for instance, you might find this movie triggering. If you do see it, tell us what you think. There are movies from all around the world at Rendezvous with Madness. Often their foreign language subtitled in English from Ireland at odds with the world around her 16-year-old Emily. She's from the Harry Potter movies. Ivana Lynch is her name. Never saw them. Anyway, she decides to dig to the roots of her eccentricity by crashing the psychiatric institution where her writer father, played by Michael Smiley, has been living most of her life. Normal is relative, and relatives are never normal. My name is Emily. I, Olga Hepinarova. It's a Czech Republic film. Im Spinweb House. That's a Spiderweb House. It's a German film. A Persian film with English subtitles. A Very Ordinary Citizen. Liberation, the User's Guide is a French-Russian collaboration. A Family Affair from the Netherlands. These are some of the offerings taking on addiction and mental health and the human condition. The opener for Rendezvous was Joey Klein's movie. He's a Montreal actor. This was, I don't know if it was his writing-directing debut. It's called The Other Half, starring Tatiana Maslany and Tom Cullen. It was filmed in Toronto. It's a realistic look at damage, one who's... Trauma leaves him incomplete, and another whose bipolar condition brings layers of chaos to their relationship. Surrounded in this romantic relationship by a family and their dysfunction, well-meaning but not very adept uh, parents working on their own unresolved dramas, trying to be helpful. It's a love story, but more of a stark reality than a Hollywood Philip finish. Klein talked with Jeff uh, Pavir, the program director of uh, Rendezvous with Madness, right after the Toronto premiere at Review Cinema, talked about how he discovered his own loss isn't something he gets over. Some losses grow with time. 
and he doesn't see anything wrong with that. Yes, he incorporates that into the play, the story he wrote. However, once uh, Cullen and Ms. Lanny walked into the roles, he was not unhappy to see them take the storyline in their own direction. So that's a wrap for episode 27 of Rebellion Dogs Radio. Thanks for being here. A lot happens from show to show, so we'll see you on Facebook and Twitter and other interweb haunts. Remember that while we're broadcasters, we're always listening. Let us know what's on your mind. Check rebelliondogspublishing.com for events, workshops, and appearances upcoming. Maybe we'll get to meet again face-to-face. Thanks to one of you, Joanne, I'm currently reading Nancy Ellen Abrams' A God That Could Be Real. Now, dancing between her love of science and her needed comfort of 12-step relief from her own food addiction, Abrams confronts that she still has unanswered questions. I felt committed to finding a higher power of my own understanding, she says, but I had no idea how to do this. Neither, it seemed to me, did anyone else. An emerging understanding of dark matter and dark energy offers all of us more of what we didn't know we didn't know about the universe. I haven't finished this book, but A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet is a search for Yahweh in what we see, not what we imagine or hope for, what we already know. A real God. We'll see. To that end, let's go out with a new song by Toronto Band of Primitive Evolution. It's called Who Is Your Maker? The journey continues. Thanks for being with us. Gets so far away from where they came from when they never really found.